So I was listening to all these podcasts and reading like self-help books and business books. And a lot of that was grist for the mill for self-care is what I ended up writing up about mm. in a novel. But first it was just like self-help for myself. You know, I was reading Jen Sincero's book, How to Be a Badass at Making Money, uh, Manifesting, Vision Boards. I was, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I'm a big fan of living in integrity. When we walk the walk and talk the talk, we signal to the universe that we are integrated. That integration is key to summoning the types of things, people, opportunities that we want. Living in integrity can also mean doing things that we don't want to do. It can mean doing the hard thing, the right thing, the thing that makes you feel really uncomfortable, but you know you have to do. I think we see this a lot in dating is a good example in our families when we have different beliefs and maybe family members and we sort of maybe don't speak up when we should because it's easier not to. We can see this in friendships when your friend did something that hurt your feelings, but you don't say anything because it's easier not to. And I think that the more we make ourselves uncomfortable, the more we stand to gain. So I think about how I want to be treated. I think about the fact that humans are not disposable. We have to treat people like they matter because they do, even if we disagree with them. And I think that oftentimes I have these conversations and I dread having these conversations and it feels like a death to pick up the phone and have that discussion. And when I do that, I find it's never as bad as it seems. And I find that we've reached a deeper understanding, whether that's, you know, a deepening a connection or maybe parting ways with a lot of respect and blessings for the other person. And I think that the more that we tell the truth, show up, commit. It feels hard in the beginning, but they're all muscles that the more we use them, the easier it becomes. And the more that we hold ourselves accountable, the more we can lead by example. And I think that's for me a very, very important thing because I want to always treat people how I expect to be treated. And even though it's not always fun, I have found that like I've gained and learned so much from a lot of these uncomfortable conversations. And so I hope that this resonates with some people out there and that you choose the hard thing because the hard thing can be the right thing. Today, we're doing something a little bit different. I've never done an episode with two people before, but this conversation I felt had to happen with these two people. Over the past year, as I've been sort of grieving and processing what happened with my startup, I have had different people that I've reached out to and had conversations around sort of the plight of the female founder. And so I brought on two friends to have a deeper conversation around this. Lee is a writer, former founder. She is churning out books. Lee wrote this book, Self-Care, which I'm just going to talk a little bit about, and sort of a satirical talk of what it is to run a a, a female-founded wellness startup. And I read it, and so we connected through Instagram and then realized that we had known each other through her former venture, BinderCon. And then she introduced me to Allie. And Allie is the co-founder of Bulletin and the author of How to Build a Goddamn Empire. And she's a new friend, and we had a beautiful, nuanced conversation around this as well. And so I'm so happy, A, to the power of books, the power of social media uh, that sort of brought us all together. Um, And I'm really excited to have this conversation. Thanks for having us, Denise. Thanks for having us, Denise. Yeah. So I would love if, Lee, you could give us a little, and then Ali, like a little bit of your background, a little bit of your story of who you are, what you've done, and how you got here. Yeah, so I'm uh, Lee Stein. I'm a writer. And in 2014, I became a member of a secret invite only Facebook group called Binders Full of Women Writers that was named after the Mitt Romney joke that some people might remember. I mean, he didn't mean it as a joke. It turned into an Internet meme that he had binders full of women. And this Facebook group exploded and I ended up starting a not for profit organization and feminist writing conference off the group called BinderCon and Denise came to our LA conference. And so that's how we first connected. And so I became like a co-founder at a time when 
the girl boss was kind of ascending. So it was kind of like the ascension of Sofia Amoruso, who coined the term girl boss. It was on the heels of Sheryl Sandberg's lean in. And I was getting a lot of advice to, you know, build a personal brand as a girl boss. But I was kind of I don't know. I had squicky feelings about it at the time. I was also broke. So I wasn't making millions like some of these other girl bosses. And ultimately, I ended up resigning in 2017 and leaving Facebook. And the whole experience inspired me to write the novel Self-Care, which came out last summer. And that's a satire of the wellness industry. But it's also about falling out, falling outs between co-founders, which is like a really common experience. So that came out last summer. I also wrote a viral essay on the end of The Girl Boss that a lot of people read and shared. So I was really capturing something in the zeitgeist in terms of female founders, but also the way the Internet turned on these women. That's that's equally as interesting to me. And so I've written since then a follow up piece to that Girl Boss essay about some of the sexist ways we talk about female founders. And then I just have a book of poetry that just came out. So I write in many genres. I write fiction, nonfiction and poetry. I wear many hats. I also run uh, a business as a book coach, helping other writers who are serious about getting published. Awesome. And I'm going to loop back on something you said, Lee, but we're going to let Allie do her thing. Um, And I stalked Lee on all these various channels. And that's how we know each other. I read self-care last year during the height of the pandemic and felt so seen and just really enjoyed the kind of biting take on, you know, feminist startups and venture capital culture that Lee encapsulated so perfectly, which is so much of what we've talked about as well, Denise. So I'm Allie Kriegsman. I'm the co-founder and chief operating officer of what is now a fast-growing retail technology company called Bulletin. We help retailers source inventory for their stores, whether they're an online retailer, a brick-and-mortar retailer, or you know a curator that's do, doing social selling on platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Pop Shop Live. Um, and we make it super easy for retailers to discover brands and source inventory. We offer really generous financing terms to those small businesses. And on the flip side, we make it super easy for brands to unlock and launch their wholesale business. We work with about 2,000 brands and now around 13,000 retailers, but this is not what we did when we first launched. Um, Bulletin was co-founded by me and my business partner and our CEO, Alana Branston. We started Bulletin as a way to put a spotlight on and support so many of the indie designers and small businesses that we fell in love with in New York. It spiraled out from a very quaint e-commerce newsletter to a brick and mortar based Retail as a service model, um, where we exclusively hosted female-founded brands, women-owned businesses, and non-binary founded and owned businesses. We ran that business model for almost three years. At our peak, we were running three stores at once. We opened around five to six stores in total, both permanent locations and pop-ups. And so much of what resonated with me about self-care and about the work you do, Denise, is Um, I I found it very difficult to lead as a woman in the venture space. You feel like you can never really win with your investors and those stakeholders who are constantly, you know, asking you to put the pedal to the metal and grow at all costs. In many cases, at the expense of your company culture and your team's, you know, life, work-life balance and sense of fulfillment and satisfaction at work. And then, you know, you're also juggling your employees as stakeholders as well you know, knowingly working for a fast growing, very demanding startup culture, but also wanting the company to uphold its values around supporting women, um, establishing that work life balance and wanting to live those those values in the most authentic sense. And I felt like your book, Lee, um, really, you know, spoke to that tension. Um, And so much of why me and Alana decided to pivot out of that retail model, partially because we felt the inherent tension in building a mission-driven venture-backed company with, you know, values-aligned employees. So, and us as, you know, values-driven leaders ourselves. So really excited for this conversation and yeah, happy to be here. So thank you both for sharing all of that. I think that there's a few, the problem with like the pyramid of this issue, right, is that there's so many different, there's like, it's very nuanced. Like there's a lot of things happening at once that a lot of people don't understand. And I think that we've all articulated these things very like similarly or have different takes on it. And one of the things that you mentioned, Lee, was you were just talking was this idea that female founders have to be brands. And Ashwarya, who's the founder of Brightland, 
um, who I believe is on Bulletin. She was on our podcast last season and she was talking about this need for female founders to like feel like they have to be social media personalities and how that takes away from the business and the focus when men aren't asked or required to do that. It's not a thing that comes up, but for some reason as, as women, that publicity engine or that social media pr- yeah. personality becomes a part of like what you have to do, which is, okay, that's one thing on top of running a business. And then it's, you also have, as we've talked about this before, for me, I actually think founders are the symptom of a larger disease, which is the structure of venture capital. I think venture, basically anything that we see, whether it's the men or the women that are imploding, in my personal opinion, it's not because they like couldn't do a good job. It's because the system rewards bad behavior. And when you subscribe to that system and grow at all costs, like certain things are inevitably going to happen. And so we're blaming founders and we're coming after humans when I think we need to like talk about the system and the structural issues within it. And so I'd love to have a little color because I know, Ali, you have a venture back company. So you sort of live with these tensions in a different way. We have one venture investor, everyone else is angels. So our situation is a little different, but I would love you to talk about how is like how you've been able to walk that tightrope. I don't know that we've necessarily in, you know, the almost six year history of Bulletin walked that tightrope perfectly. And I think when we felt the tightrope getting flimsy. I don't really know what the right metaphor is here with the tightrope, but when we <laughs> loose, when we, loose tightrope. Yeah, when we felt that the the tightrope getting loose or that we might fall off of it, we put a big microscope over the problems and realized that yes, like venture capital and scaling at the rate that venture capital demands with such an explicitly feminist and mission-driven business was always going to be in inherent tension. Um, So to give you an example, we had, you know, so many incredible, eager, hardworking, part-time store associates that were responsible for running our retail stores, telling the story of these brands, you know, creating the best customer experience possible. And, you know, many of them would not show up to work very last minute because they were menstruating and they were in physical pain or they'd have to call out of shifts early. How do you, as a mission-driven company supporting women-owned businesses and, you know, pretty exclusively hiring women, position yourself as a business that wants to be values-driven and, you know, uh, kind of shatter the normal work culture and be accommodating to those needs, but also make money for the brands that are paying to be in your store and also meet your revenue benchmarks with your investors every month when you have a very unreliable, you know, part-time associate retail schedule because of these issues. So that's like a very good and concise example for me, um, even though it might feel very small of the type of decision-making that these women leaders have to make when they're so explicitly values-driven and feminist and inclusive and, you know, claiming that they want to shatter the normal, normal work culture and normal you know, expectations and relationship between leader and employee, I feel like this really speaks to that inherent tension of act of living those values, but also trying to meet, you know, investor demands of hitting certain, you know, benchmarks month over month and growing at a certain pace of also meeting customer demands, right? Like my, my customers that were coming into the physical store to shop who suddenly, you know, suddenly were closed at 5 p.m. when we said we'd be open on Instagram and on our website till 7. And then also meeting the customer demand of the brand selling in our stores, who, because we were running a retail as a service business, were paying to be in our store. And so, you know, they're getting two hours less of sales than what they signed up for. So it's this web of, it's this very layered and complex web of decision-making where your stated values and your your stakeholders are your various competing stakeholders are in constant tension with each other. If I can chime in, I would just say something about um, we saw online last summer a real call for accountability. We see that word a lot, accountability, and something I really thought about as I was writing a follow up piece to my girl boss essay from last summer is who are these founders accountable to? Because it's not only the people on social media, on Twitter, it's their their investors, it's their employees, it's their customers. And I think that the wing is like such a spectacular example of this. Everyone was very upset about the wing. The wing really tried to do 
for-profit feminism. And Audrey Gelman got held to the fire about whether she succeeded or failed at this. But you see people online, you know, yelling at the wing and I doubt they're even wing members. So not only do you have customers, but then you have these like gawkers on the side who feel like they're a part of the story too. So the tension between all these different stakeholders and in the middle of that is the founder who's accountable in different ways to multiple different parties and for different reasons it's really hard to be a founder. And, you know, like I'm one of the few writers writing about the girl boss um, who was a founder herself. So I think that's what I bring Mm -hmm. to the conversation because I know what it's like to be in the middle of all that heat and to really try to do the right thing and to really try to listen to multiple people and to reach consensus. I'm a Libra. I like harmony. I like people pleasing. You know, I was always looking for a diplomatic um, solution to conflict. And with some of these conflicts, I just had such a hard time finding something that would even please the majority of the parties. Yeah. And I think, Lee, that's like, that's exactly the the point I was trying to make in that like small, limited anecdote or experience. So much of the coverage that I saw last year, and I wrote a blog post about this on my website, was missing the the layers of, you know, the venture capitalists as stakeholders, the employees as stakeholders, the angel investors as stakeholders, the advisors as stakeholders. Um, and I think so often when it's a women-run venture-backed business, especially if there's a stated mission-driven backing behind it, um, they are the ones that exclusively get held to the fire and, you know, called in for accountability But, you know, Denise, what you so adeptly talk about is the fact that this is a larger problem within the ecosystem. And we can't just talk about the singular founder. We have to talk about the, you know, board members that may in many cases have more ownership of this company and this entity at this point in the company's evolution than the founder even does. So they have more decision making power. And this isn't to excuse the founder. Like, it's your business. Like, you should be able to speak up, make changes, make pivots and like fight for what is valuable to you. But I I think in many instances behind the scenes, because of venture capital, the founder actually has less power and say and ownership than I think people assume from the outside. Well, I think they're also juggling a lot, which is like, you know, what I talked about this recently, this, this sort of made me, you know, I was talking with a friend who's running out of runway in their company and they were like, well, how do I stay in like this place of like abundance? And I was like, well, here's the thing as a founder, part of the mechanism is keeping you in scarcity. And when you're in scarcity and you need more money, you're desperate, you're, you're people pleasing, you're chasing down, you're disempowered, all those things. And so when you're like, having to like, like strategize that this investor, you need him for this next round. So you have to like give him this thing to get that thing. It creates a very transactional scarcity experience for a founder period. And I think that's something that people like don't realize like, well, they're worth all this money. And then it's like, but it's, it's designed to disempower you when you are trying to build something because they make the money on your back, but you need the money. And so it creates this really insane dynamic. That's actually not very healthy. And before we talk about, I want to talk a little bit about like how we can zoom out for a bit as a founder. But before we do that, Lee, I'd love you to share what happened with you at BinderCon and managing a massive 40,000 women in this Facebook group and sort of what happened there. Yeah. So we had a, the Facebook group was started by someone else. I didn't start the Facebook group, but another writer started it. It was an add a friend kind of group. She thought 20 women would join within three months. There were 30,000. And by the time I resigned, there were 40,000 members in this Facebook group. There were also 200 subgroups. So ours was the main binder for any kind of writer. And then there were subgroups based on identity or genre. So there were the rainbow binders. um, There were the women of color binders. There were the full-time freelance binders. There were the short story writers. So you could be in six or seven of these groups. And conflict inevitably arose. At the time, I thought, wow, I'm really failing as a leader because there's so much conflict in these groups. Now I look back and I'm like, of course, it was an online community. There's conflict in all online communities, especially online communities that are formed around a shared identity. So there was a lot of conflict around who could say or think what. There were um, a lot of left wing politics, which isn't a bad thing at all. But just the way these fights would play out, women policing other women about what they could say or think, who who was allowed to win an argument based on their identity. So it's like the, the the worst of identity politics at play. 
And people would come to me and they would be like, there's a fight going on in the poetry subbinder. Like you have to do something. And I'd be like, I'm not in charge of the poetry subbinder. I can't, I can't be the police here. I can't come in and make you guys play nice. Um, another example is Jonathan Chait wrote a cover story for New York Magazine called Not a Very PC Thing to Say about exactly this kind of infighting among, among the left-wing people about what we should say and what we shouldn't say. And he quoted directly from our group because someone had leaked screenshots to him. And women came to me and said, you have to catch who leaked the screenshots to him. And I thought, oh, I have to go through 40,000 people and figure out who leaked the screenshots. I was under so much pressure. I broke out in hives all over my face. And I just thought, I can't. I can't control, you know, like they kept insisting this was a secret group. But how do you keep a secret? There's 40,000 people. And so funnily enough, recently I wrote an email to Jonathan Chait and I said, like, you wrote this thing. It like ruined my life. And now I kind of agree with you. And can I mail you a copy of self-care? And he said, sure. Like he was like, I'd like to read the 10,000 word version of this email. I was like, great. You can read it in the novel. So um, I sent him the novel and he enjoyed it very much. He read it. So that was very funny. And the thing was that the conference itself was like a beautiful experience. It's like one of my proudest achievements in my whole life because you had to pay 125 bucks. You had to show up. You could meet agents and editors. You could meet other writers. You weren't alone. You were in a community. It was like such good vibes. It was just a beautiful weekend. We did it in New York and LA. I organized six of these for 2000 women and gender variant writers and the Facebook group was like the thing I could not figure out. And we had all kinds of conversations like, should we monetize it? Like if people had to pay to be in the online community, would they have more incentive to be civil and respectful to each other? But we could never figure out a way to monetize it. And we were also, you know, a not for profit. After we became a not for profit, someone was like, well, why didn't you become a B Corp? And I was like, well, what's a B Corp? It was just like it was happening so fast. It kind of sprung out of it just sprung out of a simple idea. It wasn't something like I didn't have a dream to start something like this. It just kind of evolved very organically. And then I was like in the shit. So ultimately it was the Facebook group infighting um, that led me to resign. I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. I was extremely burnt out. I had to go back on antidepressants and I uh, had a wrist injury. I got a repetitive stress injury in both my wrists because I was spending so much typing and I was drinking more and more because drinking wine was like a way to make it quote unquote fun to uh, be in these Facebook threads, moderating drama. And I'll just say one other tipping point was um, a rumor circulated that someone had been leaking screenshots. This was a separate incident to a separate journalist. And I was again, I was the executive director. I was in charge of the whole thing. And I said, that rumor is not true. That person is my friend. She lives in my town. She would never do that. And they said, it must be so hard to know a friend of yours would do something like that. And I thought, I have no authority here. I'm being gaslit by my staff. It was just such a toxic, a toxic place to be. And so I left Facebook and I think I stopped I, I feel like I was in a cult because I stopped making feminist politics my religion. I stopped making it this rigid ideology that consumed all my thoughts. Yeah. So I'm a much more independent free thinker now and a nonconformist than I was then. I think that's a really interesting point. I was part of something similar in Hollywood that was like two or 3,000 women that just devolved into just like people feeling there was microaggressions being said and then like someone saying, no, that's not true. And then like, it just, it's like, you can't tell me what I'm ex experiencing or feeling. And it just really got to a point where the group got shut down because there was no empathy or space to like have real conversation because it's just so hard when you're behind a screen or like you don't understand how people are communicating things in a, you can, you can interpret it however you want right. in email form. And it was just really, really bad for like people that came together to like uplift and support women in Hollywood and create more space for like us hiring each other. And then you're like, well, this so quickly went south because we're still humans and we're still fallible and we still are dealing with a lot of inherent tensions. And so I think when we talk about building community, this is a really important thing for to remember is like as a founder, it's like really hard to win. Like in a lot of ways, it, especially as a female founder, you're like, it's even harder to win, right? Because there's less resources available. You're under a microscope, all these sorts of things. So, but both of you did something that I think I want to talk about here, which is as a female founder, I think both of you understood the weight and the responsibility of what that was. And I think there's people mm. come that have come into entrepreneurship. I talk about this a lot 
like I came from a family of entrepreneurs. So like I never romanticized entrepreneurship. I'm like, I moved mm-hmm. sometimes across the US. I'm like, this shit sucks. Like, mm-hmm. I, and then all of a sudden I was like, I'm an entrepreneur, help, SOS. It's like, this is not what I intended for my life. Can't I just cash in and get a salary? Like it was like totally not what I wanted. But there's in our generation, very much a romanticization of what this is. And so you've all these people flocking to it, thinking they're going to make quick money or that they like want to be this person. And I think there's an inherent responsibility when you're a founder and you're hiring people and you're responsible for their livelihoods and things like that. But how did you guys have the ability to sort of like when you're talking about having these retail stores or you're talking about moderating a community to take a step back and think through it? Because when things are moving fast, it's really hard to properly think through it. And I think that like says lots and volumes about you both as leaders. But I think that's something for people to like think about because what we're seeing in some of these takedowns, right, is like what we don't know if there was these moments where they thought things through. We don't know. We don't see that part. But I'd love to hear more about sort of the tools or the thought process you had when you had to do that. I think for me, and I hope this answers your question, I I knew from the very beginning in running this business, whether it was doing account management for the brands in our store or having you know tough conversations with our corporate team or collecting feedback from our retail team i i don't even as we scale i don't want to put too much room between me and the problem i don't want to sit in an ivory tower just for the sake of scaling, because it removes, you know, certain ownership or tough conversations off my plate. So the things that we thought very deliberately and explicitly about were, if there was critical feedback for the corporate team or for the direction we were heading in with the stores, or even now with the wholesale marketplace, if anyone wants to raise their hand and have a conversation, I will make myself available to myself, have the conversation we didn't really delegate those conversations out. Of course, there were instances where the store manager would have the conversation first and then bubble it up to myself and Alana. But anytime a complaint came through, whether it was with an existing store associate or corporate employee or an employee who quit, like anytime an employee quit, I would call and do a 30-minute exit interview myself to understand what happened. That's the thing that I think Alana and I were always very deliberate and explicit and strategic about. I think a lot of what happens is as these companies scale so rapidly, there's more and more space between them and the problem, between them and the microaggressions, between them and the mismanagement. And, you know, maybe it hampered our ability to scale our stores. Maybe, you know, it's hampered our ability to scale at the rate of some of our competitors. But I think it's allowed us to run a tighter ship. Like I have a very high touch point with the problems within the organization because I don't assume or feel like it's someone else's problem to solve. I feel very concerned and insecure and stressed about those problems if I don't have a high touch point with them and the people that are reporting them. So that's, I think, the thing that we were most explicit and deliberate about. Did we think, you know, three to six months ahead when it came to the best way to structure the retail team and, you know, the management that we needed in between corporate and the retail staff? No. Are we able now with our team size and our, you know, consistent growth pace and having more senior people on the team? Are we able to do that type of proactive planning now? A thousand percent. So I also think the ability to like plan in advance where you fall on that spectrum as a company is so much more rooted in where the company's at in its evolution. If you're, you know, a fast growing early stage startup with eight employees like Bulletin was in 2017 when we had two retail stores, our ability to, you know, compute and plan ahead of time was much more handicapped than it is now with, you know, over 30 people pretty robust departments, all managed by very senior leadership with very competent managers below them. So that that's another thing. I feel like a lot of what happened last year that felt very brutal and hard for em- the employees at these companies to swallow and the spectators on the sidelines, as Lee mentioned, was, wait a minute, you have hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You have massive teams. Like, how are you operating like you're you know, building the plane as you're flying it? when you've been around for three years or you've been around for you know X amount of time or you have X number of employees. So I, I do think that we've been able to be more deliberate as we've grown, but early on, you know, when we were just eight or 10 people, 
I tried to stay as close to the complaints, the constructive feedback as as I could. Yeah, I relate to a lot of what Ali just said, because I'm someone who I mean, I think Ali and I probably share this, like we're good at many things. And so it's hard to delegate to other people, too, because I just want to be involved in all of it. It's always been hard for me to delegate. I just remember towards the end before I decided to resign, I was just so focused on I was so focused on figuring out a plan to fundraise so that there could be an executive director who could replace me, who could be paid because I was only paid stipends for the conferences. The most I ever made in one year was $12,500 to do this job, quote unquote job. And so I was like, we have to fundraise for more money so that I can like ethically feel okay about someone replacing me. Cause I was just pouring in like blood, sweat and tears into this thing. And then I just remember I had dinner with these friends and I was like crying and I was like, I'm trying to do this. I don't know how I can do this. And they basically said like, you can just resign. They like basically gave me permission that I didn't have to mm. do this anymore. And so that's what let me let go of it. I just felt a lot of guilt and we did scale, even though we're not for profit, we scaled way too fast. There's no reason we should have been yeah. doing two conferences a year. But when I tried to say this to my co-founder, we were already doing two conferences a year and she said it wouldn't be good for optics if we went down to mm. one conference a year and switch cities. So it was just too big. She and I had conflict over this exact thing. She was very much like, we'll find other people to do that. Like, we'll take things off your plate. We'll find other people to do that. But I thought we can't afford to pay them. Um, so who are we going to find to volunteer to do these things to take stuff off my plate? I'm just going to have to keep doing it. So part of me was, you know, I'm guilty of being a martyr and just taking it for the team again mm -hmm. and again and doing so much of the work. And the other thing that became clear to me as an executive director of a not for profit was that my job was going to be to ask rich people for money like that was going to be my job. And that was not what I liked doing. What I liked doing was like planning a conference like I liked event planning. Mm -hmm. That's what I love to do. And so the more it became clear that fundraising would be my job and I just thought this isn't this isn't what I love anymore. But mm -hmm. I was listening to all these podcasts about entrepreneurship like I was really trying to work on myself as a leader because I thought, well, I'm I really felt like I was floundering, like it was a personal failure that I that I wasn't a better mm -hmm. leader. So I was listening to all these podcasts and reading like self-help books and business books. And a lot of that was grist for the mill for self-care is what I ended up writing up about mm -hmm. in a novel. But first it was just like self-help for myself. You know, I was reading Jen Sincero's book, How to Be a Badass at Making Money, uh, Manifesting, Vision Boards. I was, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. Well, that's the thing is like when you're just you as a founder, there's like no one else to like, you know, it stops with you. You're sort of forced to do some work and right, like how that evolves over time and like what resonates with you and your philosophy. But that's what I think is like you're pushed to sort of if you're, I mean, evolved, I think you're pushed to do some introspection. There's plenty of people that don't do that introspection and, you know, keep going on the path. But I, like you, that's for me, like a lot of my startup was a personal growth journey. It was a lot of it was about how do I become a better leader? And like some of these questions, mm -hmm. right? When I don't have money and resources, but I need support and help, how do I bring people on and still be fair and not exploitative? Especially as mm -hmm. a white woman. Like these are things that I have thought a lot about as I was like building the startup and trying to figure out. So if I can't pay you, what, what does that look like? So if it was like part time, so what I would do and anyone who's worked for me knows I will I will not stop till I get you hired somewhere. I will get you other jobs. I will get you employed. I will figure out like all the ways I can use my network and leverage it to get you paid or whatever. But that was a big tension point for me too, which was like, you know, you have to make something out of nothing. You're not getting money, but then you can't build everything by yourself because then you're just, you know, you're no use to anybody. And these are all like the inherent tensions, even pre-money. And then of course money comes in and there's other tensions. So I think these are some of the things that are massive struggles for founders that are sort of not discussed. Um, and some of the questions we're asking both of you have co-founders and it sounds like, you know, Ali, you and your co-founder are pretty aligned on some things early on. And I want to talk about that process. I know for me, I had started my company by myself a couple of years in, I brought on a co-founder. And one of the things that we did, which I think is really at the time was sort of like an exercise, but I found it to be really, really helpful as time went on is we made like a co-founder manifesto. So we made something where we like outlined the values of the company. We outlined who are you at the worst version of yourself and like, how can we show up for you when you become the worst version for, of yourself? And like had written it all down, which really made like when we did part, it was a very tough, I mean, it was a very beautiful, a very tough conversation, but there was a lot of love and inherent understanding there in a way that I felt like we were prepared for that in a, that a lot of other founders don't think about it. They just think the best, like we're going to get along, it's going to be fine. And then when things, you know, hit that, that inflection point, 
they have nothing to refer back to or haven't sort of walked through that. And that was very, very helpful for us. So I would love to hear about your different co-founder dynamics and, you know, some of the, you know, obviously there's always tension, but the tensions, but then also what are some things you've done that really helped you remain in partnership? That's a really good question. And I love the, when are, who are you at your worst project and assessment? I think that's so smart. I got very lucky in that Alana and I knew each other and worked side by side with each other for over six months before jumping in to start Bulletin together. We were the number one and two salespeople at the content marketing software startup we worked at prior to going full-time with Bulletin. And I got to see her at her best and at her worst in a different working environment. I you know, sat next to her. We were desk mates. She was more senior at the company when I joined. And I, you know, she watched me get promoted, you know, two times over in the span of a year and change into, you know, this the same role that she was in when I when I was starting there at 24. I was a sales executive by the time I was 25. And she watched me also. I created a documentary about Israel education and Jewish day schools that I premiered, you know, in in a loft in Soho um, while we worked together. And she had an e-commerce company that she folded right before we started Bulletin. And I feel like it was, you know, we didn't do that, like, who are you at your worst assessment that you mentioned, which anyone who is, you know, building a co-founder relationship right now, I I do recommend that because I feel like Alana and I have met each other at our worst in real time as we've built and grown and pivoted this thing over the years. But I think that the basis of our foundation was like, she knew who I was and I knew who she was because we work side by side. It's it's definitely been like a marriage. Like it's something you have to work on. There have been experiences, you know, in launching my book, for example, where I didn't interpret myself as unavailable, but she interpreted me as a bit unavailable. And that was a, you know, troubleshooting and and direct one-on-one conversation we had to have with each other. She at one point was running our product development. She is not really, you know, suited to do that. She's suited to do so many other incredible things at Bulletin. And I had to sit her down and have that conversation. And I think in most cases between the two of us, anxiety, stress, and that scarcity mindset in venture capital is usually what triggers us becoming our worst. But I feel very lucky in that I've I've found a very understanding, empathetic, like cheerleader in my co-founder. And we're able to have like very direct conversations and we don't harbor resentment for too long. Like maybe it goes a week and then we realize some things, you know, behind the scenes that we have to bring to the forefront and have a conversation about. But um, I think what what really helped us establish the right style of communication and the right type of relationship in the early days was, you know, having worked side by side together in a different but equally challenging working environment prior to going all in on this thing full time together. Yeah. When I look back, I just have so many things I wish I would have done differently, like a co-founder manifesto. Wow. What a great idea if we had thought to do that. I met, I didn't know my co-founder at all. I had said on Facebook, should we have a conference? And a hundred people were like, I'll volunteer. And I started a Google group. And one of those a hundred people said, you should fundraise. And I said, would you like to be my co-founder? That's it. (laughs) Just because she had the idea to fundraise, which hadn't occurred to me. Like this is how naive I was. And it, we were just riding this wave of momentum and energy. We started a Kickstarter. We raised $50,000 in three months. We planned a conference for 550 women with Jill Abramson. Then the recently, uh, she had just been the executive editor of the New York Times. So it was huge. It was huge. And my co-founder had successfully like run a business and sold it. Like she had a lot of experience that I didn't have. So we had, you know, we balanced each other out, but we didn't really have a plan for dealing with conflict. That's a regret I have to this day. So things things went sour. And after I resigned, I mean, I never spoke to her again. So it really was a painful divorce. And it's actually the second kind of thing that I had with a friend slash uh, business partner. I've had two of these breakups and it's extremely painful. And so self-care comes out of both those experiences. Cause you're talking to this person. I mean, like my co-founder and I, we would text from eight in the morning until 10 at night. Like it was just like, we were so inside each other's lives and then, um, you know, things just imploded. So it's very sad. And I do have regrets about how it ended. Well, it's, I don't think you're alone. I think this is a lot. This is a very like standard thing for anyone building a company because the pressures you're going to face are 
can't predict how, how, what, what they are going to be number one, and then how you're going to react to them because you're in these really radical sort of situations, whether it's like women or men or, you know, however you identify the reality is, this is a very common experience. And I have a friend who's going through it now. And I have like, you know, I have people in my life that their business partners tried to like coup the company. Like there's just some crazy stuff that happens that you're like, I can't believe I have to like spend my time when I'm trying to run a business. Now, trying to like keep retain ownership of my company and you're just like this it's just like really insane like it feels like it's uh stuff from like another time period in terms of like how people show up and operate so i don't think you're alone in that but i think that's that's sort of the for me has been the opportunity of the gift of being a founder is the ability to then like react better over time and things that are less inflammatory situations that might have been felt more inflammatory to me had i not you know gone through the trial by fire of a startup the other lesson I've learned is like since then, since I resigned in 2017, I've had multiple people come to me with a business idea asking me to be their co-founder. And I have wisely declined those opportunities. I just I just haven't found the right fit. I haven't found something that I would just I, I just know how hard it is and how much I have to dedicate myself to something. And so for me, I'd rather fly solo. I get a lot of those calls, too. And I'm like, we're good on one for now. I'm not, uh, the amount of energy it takes to do this. That's a thing. I'm like anyone romanticizing it. I'm like, I don't think you should be romanticizing this experience. It means you have very little time and energy for people, for pets, for like, you know, personal life. Like it is a really, really challenging road and it's awesome when you're in like the thick of it. But I, I really always tell people, I'm like, when people are like, I want to start a company, I'm like, why? And I will like grill them and have like a long conversation because I'm like, you have to be the most convicted of what you do. You have to be the most obsessed and you have to know that like seven years go by, you're still willing to fight for it the same way you were year one. And a lot of people that I know, specifically a lot of men I know, will raise a bunch of money and then they quit after a year or two because it got hard or like wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And you're like, how nice that you could raise $2 million and then just quit after two years. Yeah, I think that David Sedaris four burners theory is really true. Like if you have four burners on a stove and one is health, one is family, one is friends, one is career, like to be successful, you can only have three and to be really successful, like you can only have two. Like, I, I don't I don't know that it's possible to have to truly have it all um, or, or not. Not you can't have it all at once. I don't think you can have it all at once, but I'm a little naive. And I believe if we were to adjust our expectations of how we work, because I think a lot of the ways that we demand of people's work is unhealthy and unsustainable. And I think if we were to modify work expectations, you probably could have it all. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we're there yet. I know I saw last week or like there's someone trying to legislate a four day work week. Mm. And I was like, I'm into that vibe. Yeah, there's a there's a one of the poems in my new book is about the last dance, which is the document, the ESPN documentary about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. And I loved it so much. And people were like, I was like, I couldn't stop talking about it. And people were like, well, I don't think Michael Jordan comes off as very nice. And I'm like, no, he's not nice. That's not the point. Like he's competitive and he works harder than anybody else. And I find that really inspiring. But it's that's gauche for me to say, because now we're having this whole conversation about late stage capitalism and productivity and toxic productivity and, and how, how evil competition is. And it's, it's just an interesting moment for me because I'm like, but everything I've achieved in my career is because I'm competitive and motivated. And I, you know, I don't have children. I, work is my life. I dedicate myself to work and that's how I've gotten what I've gotten. So I don't think I can I can lie and say like uh, that I could do this working four days a week. I mean, work, it brings me joy and it brings me pleasure, but it's getting to work on what I want to work on. To your point, Lee, there's been such a swell of like anti-girl boss, anti-capitalism, anti-hustle culture content on Twitter, on Instagram. And I do think that the pandemic and, you know, the the number of women that were forced out of the workforce to handle childcare. And, you know, the crazy demands of these massive startups who are just trying to stay alive and companies in general who are working with such slimmer resources than normal and, you know, trying to get on the other side of this pandemic. Like, it's not surprising to me that this is now in conversation and in the zeitgeist. But I really struggle with this as well, because like the things you apply forced to are the things that move. And unless I'm happy with a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain kind of narrow career and a certain amount of wealth and therefore stability and security in case 
you know, someone in the family gets sick. Like my dad has had two kidney transplants, been hospitalized a thousand times with diabetes. Like my parents were entrepreneurs. That was like a real financial burden on my family. It actually completely sent my family under before their divorce because I grew up with instability that was directly correlated with a lack of financing to handle that instability. Like my eye is on the target. I'm like, I need to get rich. I don't know what else to say. If I want kids, if I want money for them to go to great schools, if I want money to take care of either of them or my partner, if they get sick, if I want the living situation I want, which I'm allowed to want all of these things. I don't blame capitalism for making me want these things. Sorry that I want to get rich. Like I just saw something on Instagram yesterday that was like, we shouldn't be applauding Rihanna for being a billionaire. And I'm like, why? Like, why? Can, can we, can, like, sh- maybe someone should have, like, shot down the Jeff Bezos rocket if we really want to, like, penalize billionaires. 100%. And it's it's, it's just, like we should be celebrating a woman of color billionaire. Of course we should. Like, it, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a big discussion right now. And I feel so caught in the web around it because I understand the things behind it. And I know what it feels like to get burnt out. And I know what it felt like for my mom to be bearing the weight of keeping our family, you know, alive and me and my brother in school and fed and a roof over our heads when she became the sole breadwinner. Like, I know what it looks like to hustle till the very end. But I also understand and appreciate that there are certain things that I want in my life. I don't blame anyone or any system for me wanting them. And I'm not going to capitulate. I'm just going to keep working as hard as I know Jeff Bezos and Rihanna and Oprah and Reese Witherspoon have all had to do to reach that status and that stability in their lives. So this may have been a bit of a tangent, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately and like how, how wrong is it for women to want to make money and how wrong is it for us to know and therefore to know that we have to work hard and want to work exceptionally hard in order to get there. Yeah, but I also think everything you're saying also points to how wrong it is that America doesn't provide health care for its citizens. You know, that this is such a this is such a huge anxiety that what what health care costs can do to bankrupt families and people. And so I'm a big uh, raise the corporate tax rate kind of gal. Um, and I think we can have a Warren Stan all the way. Yeah. Yeah. So like, let's have competition and let's have, you know, businesses profit and then like pay their fair share. Totally. And I think there's no problem. I'm all about women making money. I just think what my, this has come up like eight times in this podcast. So at this point, everyone, I'm sorry, but what keeps coming up, there's a great book by David Hawkins called power versus force and talking about, and for me, that's been a big reconceptualization of how I can work because force for me leads to burnout and unsustainability. So how can I work in a way that is generative, that I continue to work hard and create and do all the things that I want to do without feeling like I'm like killing myself. So that's really like been a big thing for me. But I want to jump into a rapid fire because I know Ali has to go soon. So five questions, intuition, follow your heart. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? My 20-year-old self, be patient, have fun, and please care a lot less about what other people think. I think I would say you're cute. I love that one. <laughs> it's the best one I've ever heard, I think. That's amazing. <laughs> what is the last book you read? Oh, I read this collection of poetry um, that comes out next spring by Corinna McGlynn, and it's called 50 Things Kate Bush Taught Me About the Multiverse. And if you're like a geriatric millennial like me and you remember mud jeans and vanilla scented candles and like listening to Kate Bush music in your bedroom on a mixtape, this book is very nostalgic. She's a very funny writer. Um, I highly recommend it. I just finished What to Miss When, Lee's new poetry book, because I interviewed her for her book launch. But I'm also halfway through The Silent Patient because I love a good mystery murder thriller. Love that. What are you struggling with right now? (laughs) I feel like it's this very elusive thing that I'm always chasing. And my boyfriend always tells me I'm such a grass is greener person. Like, the things I wanted on Monday, I can have them all on Friday and then I will just completely move the goalpost. So I think sometimes my ambition gets in the way of me being happy in the moment and with all that I've accomplished, but also just all of the joy and like gratitude 
and beautiful things that I've cultivated in my life so far. I think I'm struggling with finding the time to get back to my own creative work because I'm in the book promotion mode right now, which is a lot of interviews and talking about myself and being on. But to me, it's so different from being inside a project. And so I just miss that space of being inside a new book. So I hope this fall I'll be able to carve out the time to really go deep and disappear from the Internet for at least a couple hours at a stretch. What is bringing you joy right now? I had a lot of joy at my book launch party with Allie. You know, like we're on the East Coast. There's definitely fear and anxiety about the Delta variant. I know I got a lot of last minute messages from people that are like, I'm just, you know, I just am not feeling it. I'm not going to be able to make it. But like the people that showed up are just they were just the best people. My my writing group that I Zoomed with once a week during the whole pandemic while I wrote this poetry book, we call ourselves KIP, K-I-P, Keep It Positive. They all came to the book launch and it was just so special um, to have them there because they were such an essential part of my my creative work and my sanity during the pandemic, which is ongoing. I feel like I've known you for a very long time, but we just met face to face the other night. What's bringing me joy right now? Okay, so I'm a total like UAP, UFO, alien freak. I'm a big, I wouldn't even call it a conspiracy. Like they exist. And there's it's a been new, confirmed. It's been confirmed by the Pentagon. There's a new J.J. Abrams show called UFO that is the best, like most well-executed series on UFOs that I've seen. There was one on Netflix that I watched when I was sick with a cold a few weeks ago. And, you know, I did it. I swallowed it. I let it happen. But it definitely was a letdown. And I feel like this one swooped in and it's like everything I want it to be and more and all of the raw footage of UFO sightings. It's like chef's kiss. So good. Give me all the raw UFO content that exists. Thank you. I love to know this about you. I'm going to send you something. Um, (laughs) What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Don't forget to be good on the inside. And It's a very elusive piece of advice, but I think what it's meant for me is always optimizing for what feels the most right, the most true, the most genuine, and always giving people the benefit of the doubt, maybe sometimes to my detriment, but just approaching the world with an open heart and warmth and goodness and, um, you know, seeing the bright spots in tough situations as best I can. So it's a very vague sentence, but I love be good on the inside. The one that's coming to mind at this moment is like advice on networking, which is instead of going to someone and asking them to do something for you, ask yourself, how could I make this person's day? Because just a a message can really open a door to a conversation. I think that's how Allie and I met. She just messaged me because she liked self-care. She didn't message me and ask me to do something for her. But it turned into this great relationship. And now we've done multiple events together. We're doing this podcast together. And so if anyone's listening to this and they're shy and they aren't sure how to build their network or start connecting with more people in their space um, and growing their community, I would say start by asking yourself the question, how could I make this person's day? And that can open a lot of doors. That's awesome advice. Um, thank you guys so much. This has been so joy-filled for me. I know there's a lot more we could dig into. Like we barely touched the surface on this like hot issue, but I hope we provided a little more color for people that are sort of caught up in the news cycle around like why this is a really challenging topic. And thank you both for being such like positive examples of female leadership. Thank you all for listening. You can listen and subscribe to Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you can listen to podcasts, you can find ours. It makes a huge difference if you could review, share, and rate this podcast. I want to give a big thank you to Entertainment Speakers Bureau and Angela, Wine Designs Media, Lenny Skolnick for the musical intro, Lindsay Johnson on the graphics, Olivia Christian on social. I'm so, so grateful. I hope you find or continue living in your purpose. 